0: Oh, remember that story back in uh, number sixteen about Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, the the men who rebelled against Moses and Aaron, uh, and remember how they died when the Lord opened up the earth beneath them and they and their families fell in, and and how we learned how they paid for their sin with their lives, and how the the Lord counted that as holy. That's all in class 22. But what I forgot to mention last week, or last time actually, was that Samuel, this incredible prophet and judge, is a descendant of Korah, one of those men. The Lord well and truly forgave Korah and is now honoring his descendant. Samuel's an old man now, and he's got a couple of sons he set up as judges in Israel. Israel. That things are not working out. His sons are as bad as Hophni and Phineas were. And the Israelites are concerned about what's going to happen when Samuel dies. The Philistines have grown steadily stronger, despite what the story said last time. In fact, things are so bad, they've begun setting up garrisons inside of Israel. And they've shut down all of Israel's blacksmiths. So the Israelites have no way of forging new weapons. And now the Ammonites are terrorizing the Israelite tribes east of the Jordan. So things are are in bad shape. The elders of Israel come to Samuel to beg him to anoint a king like the other nations have. I don't think it's because they feel inferior and want to socially pattern themselves after the other nations. Um, I think partly it's because they're scared of, of what will happen if his sons become judge, judges after him. And I think it's because they don't see God rising up to protect them. God has not annihilated the Philistines or the Ammonites. And the Israelites, are they're done with trusting God for protection. They're taking matters into their own hands. Samuel, of course, is horrified. For one thing, it's been his job all these years to lead the Israelites towards God, to teach them to trust God, to intercede for them before God. And he feels like an utter failure. His sons are a failure. He's a failure. But God says, no, Samuel, it's not you they're rejecting. It's me. If they insist on having a king, give them a king. Samuel tries so hard to talk the Israelites out of this. You know, he's got to be scared to death that the Lord is going to destroy them for trusting a man rather than the God who loves them. He warns them that a king will take their money, their sons, their daughters, their best servants, their cattle and donkeys, nothing will be spared. Taxes will increase. Their sons will be conscripted. Their daughters pressed into service in the palace and in the king's harem. And God will stand back and let them reap the consequences of their choices, just as when they chose idols. If they choose a king, God will not rescue them from their choice. But the Israelites insist. Samuel cannot convince them. This is a terrible idea. So Samuel goes back to the Lord in great distress. And again, the Lord says, fine. Give him a king. So Samuel sends the people home and he waits on the Lord to show him who should be king over Israel. The spotlight dims on Samuel and comes up on a tall, handsome young man. His name is Saul. He's about 30 years old and is already married and has a teenage son. He's from a well to do family in the tribe of Benjamin. His father Kish is a man of strength and valor, the same description given for Boaz back in the story of Ruth. Saul himself is from the town of Gebeah. You'll recognize that as the Gebeah that the Israelites destroyed in the story of the Levite and the concubine. We find Saul trudging through the hill country of Ephraim with his servant. His father Kish has sent him to look for some donkeys that have wandered off. I think the donkeys are an important motif in this story. We're going to notice them because they get mentioned at several key points. I think they represent Kish's claim on Saul. Saul serves his father Kish as he searches for the donkeys. Also, this whole story is studded with the concepts of seeking, finding, and hiding. Saul has been looking for these donkeys for three days and he says to his servant, let's give up and go home. We can't find the donkeys. It's been so long. My father will be worried about what's happened to us. If you remember the tool we gathered in our study of Ruth, the first words of a major biblical character are significant, giving us insight into their primary character strength or flaw and sometimes their words foreshadow the central event in their story. In Saul's first words, we see a man who has been wandering around, unsuccessful in the task his father assigned him, and now he's ready to give up and turn back. Saul is not a good leader. He's handsome. The people will love him, but he's fatally flawed. Saul's servant tries to prop him up, saying, Well, let's don't give up now. We're close to where that man of God lives, meaning Samuel. Let's go see if he can help us. But Saul resists, saying, we can't go to him empty-handed. You have to pay those guys if you want them to help you, and we're completely out of food and money. But the servant, being more foresighted than Saul, has wisely kept a little silver back, and he offers it as payment for Samuel. So off the young men go to find Samuel, seeking again. On the way, they run into a gaggle of girls coming down to draw water at the well, Oops, this sounds like a classic betrothal scene, doesn't it? And I wonder, if the Israelites had not hijacked God's agenda, what might have happened here? But unbeknownst to Saul, his life trajectory has already shifted. The girls serve only to tell him exactly where he can find Samuel. Go up on that high hill. He's up there getting ready to bless a sacrifice and have a big feast. Hurry. In the distance, we see Samuel walking towards Saul. The Lord has already told Samuel that he will meet the chosen prince today and that he's a young man from the tribe of Benjamin. He will be the one the Lord has chosen to deliver the Israelites from the Philistines. Now, notice two things here. Samuel thinks of the chosen one as a prince, not a king. He's still like mentally resisting the idea of kingship in Israel. And also notice the reference to the Philistines. Remember that when the judge Samson was born, the Lord told his mother that Samson would begin to deliver Israel from the Philistines. But Saul is appointed to actually do it. When Samuel sees Saul, the Lord says, that's the one. He's the one I've chosen to ride herd on my people. This is our first instance of finding in the story. P.S. The donkeys in this artist's rendition are not the lost ones. Those are just donkeys Saul and his servant are apparently riding. They haven't found the donkeys they were looking for. Saul stops Samuel and says, can you tell me how to get to the seer's house? Now, I find this fascinating. The girls had already told Saul he's not at home and have told him exactly where to find Samuel. They've already pointed him to the big hill and told him to hurry. But Saul is still unsure of himself, and he's not listening. He's trying to find Samuel's house, not catch up with the man himself at the altar. Samuel tells Saul that he himself is the seer. There's finding again. Samuel takes Saul and his servant with him up the hill to the sacrifice and seats Saul at the head of the table. Then he tells the cook to give Saul the serving of thigh and fat tail that would normally be reserved for the priest. Now, thus far in Israel, only priests are anointed. The judges are chosen by God and they anoint the priests. So giving Saul this special food is a coded message Samuel is giving the people. He's singling Saul out to be anointed, but not as priest. Now, for the first time, a king is going to be anointed. This is our first hidden message in the story. After the feast, Samuel and Saul and the servant come down from the high place. Samuel makes Saul a bed on his roof, and early the next morning, Samuel calls up to awaken Saul and tell him it's time to go. They walk together to the edge of town. Samuel tells Saul to send his servant on ahead because Samuel has a secret message for Saul. Again, something hidden. When they're alone, Samuel anoints Saul with oil and kisses him saying, the Lord has anointed you prince over his inheritance. Notice how Samuel is still using the word prince. And notice that the Lord considers Israel, the people, the nation. His own inheritance. Then Samuel gives Saul three signs. When you leave today, you will meet two men at Rachel's tomb. They will tell you the donkeys you have been searching for have been found and your father is worried about you. But you are to give those two men the slip. Now, this is significant in a couple of ways. First, Rachel was the mother of Benjamin all those years ago, the same Benjamin whose tribe Saul belongs to. And remember, she was the one who worshiped idols all her life. It was only after her death and burial that the Bible says Jacob buried Rachel and Israel moved on. It is at this very spot where Saul will meet these two men. This spot where his ancestor Jacob leaned fully into his new identity as Israel. I think that's the significance of this first sign. Saul is to lay down his past life and lean fully into his new calling from God. The other thing that's significant about this sign is that the men will say the donkeys have been found. There's those donkeys again. The men are telling him, Saul's obligation to his father has ended. Saul's obligation is now to God, not to his earthly father, Kish. The Hebrew indicates that Samuel tells Saul to slip away from those men. Don't go back to your father, Samuel says. Instead, continue on to the great tree of Tabor. There you will meet three men going up to God at Bethel, which means house of God. One will be carrying three goats, one will be carrying three loaves of bread, and one will be carrying a skin of wine. Now we don't know the significance of the Tree of Tabor, but we do know the significance of this particular combination of items, the goats, the bread, and the wine. If you remember from our work uh, from class 17, These are the items needed to make a fellowship offering to the Lord. A fellowship offering is a voluntary offering of devotion to the Lord, a sign of voluntarily drawing near to the Lord. And Samuel tells him, the men will give you two loaves of bread. Now, remember how Samuel gave Saul the priest's portion of meat, the thigh and fat tail at the feast earlier? Well, According to Leviticus 7.14, bread is the part of a fellowship offering that the regular people are not to eat. They are only supposed to eat the other parts of the offering, the meat, and they're to drink the wine, but they're not to eat the bread. So why are two loaves of bread given to Saul? I think it's because the fellowship offering requires giving the priest one loaf of bread made with yeast and one loaf of unleavened bread. So now, for a second time, Saul is given the portion reserved for the Lord's anointed. Samuel says the third sign will happen when Saul approaches his hometown of Gibeah which at this time is also home to a Philistine garrison. He will meet a troop of prophets who are playing instruments and are caught up in a frenzy of ecstasy to the Lord. They will be prophesying and dancing and the Holy Spirit will overcome Saul and he too will prophesy and in that moment he will be changed into a new man. It is at this culmination of the three encounters that the Holy Spirit will meet Saul and Saul himself will be anointed with the power of the Spirit. From that point on, Samuel says to Saul, "The Lord will be with you in all you do." Then there's a passage in the story that is completely out of chronological order. It's in 1st Samuel 10:8 but it belongs a lot later in chapter 13. Now, when you see something like that out of place in the biblical text, there's always a good reason for it. So I started pulling out the backpack tools. At first, I thought it might be that the author had blended two sources together, but when I checked, I didn't see any evidence that you know, several parts of the later story are interspersed here, you know, if they're using two sources, it'll be like shoelaces, you know, interleaved together. And that was clearly not what was happening. It's just this one verse way out of order. So that means the author has a thematic reason for placing the passage here. Let's read the part that's out of order. Samuel says, go down ahead of me to Gilgal, I will surely come down to you to sacrifice burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, but you must wait seven days until I come to you and tell you what you are to do. This is placed immediately after the event in which Saul is to be changed into a new man when the Holy Spirit falls on him. He's just been anointed and placed in the service of the Lord as prince over Israel. Saul is no longer his own. He must cling to the Lord. And and he must deliver the people from the Philistines. But it must be the Lord's might and not his own. So this, this gray part is what's out of order. And the blue part is where it is placed in the story. So when we get do get to chapter 13 to the story of what happens later at Gilgal, we need to remember the context of Samuel's instructions here. This is why those the blue part is why what happens later is such a huge big deal and why the repercussions are so bad. So anyway, I feel sure that Saul has no clue of the true significance of all these events. He seems to be utterly bewildered. He apparently tends to wander through life from one encounter to another. And even after all these things come to pass, exactly as Samuel predicts, Saul does not seem to take this king stuff very seriously at all. Saul does indeed meet the two men who tell him the donkeys have been found. He gives them the slip and then meets the three men on their way to Bethel who give him the two loaves of bread. And he, as he approaches his home in Gebeah, he meets the prophets. And sure enough, he himself is overcome by the Holy Spirit and his heart is changed somehow. The people of Gebeah who know Saul, this is his hometown, They're astounded at his behavior under the influence of the Holy Spirit. And they make up a new riddle saying, what has happened to Saul, son of Kish? Is Saul also one of the prophets? And the answer they give to the riddle is, and who is their father? Is Saul also one of the prophets? Because of our careful work, we know the significance of the riddle and why the answer is, who's your daddy? Saul's father is no longer Kish, but God. Saul's uncle accosts him, saying, where the heck have you been? And Saul tells him, I've been looking for the donkeys, and then I met Samuel, the prophet. The uncle replies, what did Samuel say? And Saul says, well, he told me the donkeys have been found. Saul did not tell his uncle anything about being anointed prince over Israel. That is so telling, right? Saul is hiding. God has changed his heart and given him power, but Saul seems to be sticking his head in the sand. This is not good. After these things, Samuel summons all the people to Mizpah. There he tells them of the Lord's extreme displeasure with them for their rejection of his love and provision and protection. It doesn't matter that the people are afraid and have been oppressed by the Philistines for years. What matters is whether they trust the Lord instead of their own might. And of course, the answer is no. They've only had sporadic periods of truly following the Lord, right? And so Samuel calls them to present themselves before the Lord so the Lord can identify the man he's chosen to be their king. Samuel and Saul already know the answer, of course, but this is so the people will see for themselves the Lord doing the choosing. One by one, the tribes pass before Samuel. Lots are cast and the tribe of Benjamin is chosen. One by one, the clans of Benjamin pass before Samuel and the family of Kish is chosen. Then Saul, but where Saul should be standing? There is only an empty spot. So the people ask, Is the man you have chosen here among us, Lord? Yes, the Lord says, He's hiding among the baggage. This would be comical if it wasn't so characteristic of Saul. He is simply not ready to be king. He seems to be suffering from a very bad case of imposter syndrome. Nevertheless, he is the one the Lord chooses. And the people drag him from his hiding place. Samuel announces, this is the man the Lord has chosen. And the people shout, long live the king. Samuel solemnly explains to them the ramifications of having a king, what their obligations are, and what the king's responsibilities are as well. The people are cutting a covenant with their king, just as they'd cut a covenant with the Lord all those years ago. Then Samuel writes all of this down, and the document is put away for safekeeping. And after that, Samuel sends the people home. Wait, what? Yeah, everyone goes home, including Samuel and Saul. Why? Well, remember those Philistines and the nasty Ammonites? Nothing has changed yet, except that the people who have now placed their trust in a young king who has no palace and no army. The Israelites are still under the yoke of their enemies. On the surface, nothing has changed. Not everyone is happy about this, of course. To be sure, many men of valor flock to Saul's side, but there's a large faction of troublemakers who despise Saul and do not offer him gifts of property or of service. Saul, it says, bides his time, but ready or not, The pressure on him is mounting. It doesn't take long before the Ammonites make a move. Their king, Nahash, which means snake, besieges Jebesh Gilead. Here are the first two verses in chapter 11. Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jebesh Gilead. And all the men of Jebesh said to him, Make a treaty with us and we will be subject to you. But Nahash the Ammonite replied, I will make a treaty with you only on condition that I gouge out the right eye of every one of you and so bring disgrace on all Israel. Ouch. Why in the world would he do such a thing? Why is it a disgrace? Well, this is where the field of textual criticism comes in. Those are the scholars who examine the original texts, the fragments, the scrolls, the different meanings of the words, the historical context of the language itself, etc., And our study, our gentle ramble, has been enriched by the work of textual criticism all along. So I turned to them for help here. This was a very confusing response from Nahash. It turns out that when the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered, a scroll in Cave 4 had this particular part of Samuel on it. Remember, these are the oldest scrolls we've got now. Well, this scroll had an additional piece in it. Now, Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, had been grievously oppressing the Gadites and the Rumenites. He would gouge out the right eye of each of them and would not grant Israel a deliverer. No one was left of the Israelites across the Jordan, whose right eye, Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, had not gouged out. But there were 7,000 men who had escaped from the Ammonites and had entered Jabesh Gilead. And, and then the, we go on with all the men of Jabesh said, make a treaty with us. We'll be subject to you. And Nahash says, no, not unless I gouge your eye out. So, wow, like that helps. Why does the Dead Sea Scroll have this section in it? And the ones we've been using before from the Masoretic text and the Septuagint don't. Well, it's actually a pretty simple explanation the scribe's eye seems to have accidentally skipped from that first Jabesh Gilead to the second one. So when he went back to read the next bit to copy, he accidentally skipped all the blue part here and continued on with his copying. This is actually a pretty common mistake that scholars find when comparing scrolls. It's just that before the Dead Sea Scrolls, we didn't have a scroll with this older expanded version and it it did not make it into our Bible translations that had been translated before the Dead Sea Scrolls were available. So when scholars find something like this, you can imagine the discussions that are generated. Some scholars think the new material is strong enough to be included in our modern translations. Others disagree. Often a translation will add the new material as a footnote, but for the most part, those older translations, they're done, you know, unless they're going to do a revision of the entire translation, what you had in your Bible is what you had and you didn't have this middle part. I tell you so that you know how much of an art biblical translation is and how vulnerable we are to being the recipients of copies of copies and translations of translations. It's so important to understand there is not one single pure version of an original text dictated word by word by god himself that is not how the bibles we hold in our hands came to be another resource i've introduced to you is josephus a historian who wrote during the time of christ you have to take his stuff with a healthy grain of salt of course but he often adds very helpful insight for example i looked in his book jewish antiquities where which you can find free online and his version of this story says A month later, war broke out with the Ammonites. Nahash, their king, had attacked those tribes which lived beyond the Jordan and taken many of their cities. To make it impossible for them to regain their liberty, he put out the right eye of every Israelite who fell into his hands. This rendered the men useless in war, since their left eyes were obstructed by their shields. Oh, wow, that makes perfect sense. Now this is so cool. So cool. So needless to say, the men of Jebesh Gilead do not want their eyes gouged out. They beg Nahash the snake for seven days to try to find a deliverer. If after seven days, no one will fight for them, they will surrender to Nahash. I don't know if this is some sort of ancient war custom to give a city under siege a chance to find a deliverer. It kind of sounds like the Goliath scenario. Apparently so. The Dead Sea Scroll says Nahash had refused up to now, but when the men set a seven-day limit on their search, Nahash agrees to a brief truce. The men of Jabesh Gilead send a frantic message to Saul. This situation is exactly why the people of Israel, have asked for a king. It is the king's job to coordinate a military defense. So what is Saul doing when the message reaches him? Holding a council of war, recruiting soldiers, building a palace, collecting taxes? Nope, he's plowing. He's out there in the field, just him and his team of oxen and his plow. Just another typical day in Saul's life. But when the desperate message reaches him, The Holy Spirit falls on him again in power. He cuts up the oxen and sends their body parts throughout Israel as a call to arms. What I find interesting here is that he says the call is coming from him and from Samuel. He's still suffering from his imposter syndrome. He still does not believe that the Lord is now with him in all that he does. He's still hiding. And right now, He's hiding behind Samuel's authority. The Israelites respond to Saul's dramatic message en masse. It says 300,000 men come from Israel and 30,000 from Judah. That alone gives you a solid hint that this book was written down sometime after Israel and Judah split into two separate kingdoms. So this book was written at least 100 years later and probably more like four or 500 years later. As the men gather, Saul sends a message to Jabesh gilead We will deliver you from the Ammonites tomorrow. The men of Jabesh gilead turn around and tell the Ammonites, we will surrender to you tomorrow, obviously to throw them off guard. Saul and his army creep up on Jabesh gilead in the middle of that very night. Saul splits his forces into three divisions and they attack the Ammonites, completely routing them. What a great rejoicing there is in Israel. The people say, long live King Saul. Let's round up all those troublemakers who are refusing to recognize you as our king. We will put them to death immediately. But Saul stops them saying, no, no, this is the day the Lord has rescued us. We will not put anyone to death in Israel this day. After that great victory, it's clear that Israel is ready to unite under Saul's leadership. Samuel calls all the people to Gilgal to reaffirm Saul's kingship. And there at Gilgal, the people offer sacrifices and celebrate their brand new king. The Lord chose Saul. Saul could have been a great king. But Saul, like various judges we studied earlier, gets a choice in the matter. And Saul cannot get past himself. We'll give this some thought today in our breakout groups. Welcome back. Yay. Awesome. So I was really struck by um, the story of Saul, as well as the story of Judges, by how much of a difference it makes, what our response is to God's call and gifting. It's astounding, um, how much discretion we have? What did, uh, and that was kind of the question. Um, was comparing Saul's response to to the response of the fishermen in Galilee during the time of Jesus, who were uneducated, unprepared. They were not from well-to-do families. They were not tall and handsome and gifted and like Saul was. Um, and 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 the Holy Spirit fell on both. Saul and on the um, early disciples before the you know on the disciples when Jesus uh, had had left and their responses were completely different. What what did you all come up with in terms of what was going on there?
1: We had a great discussion and and you know one possibility is that um, Saul really did not have the holy spirit fall on them at least initially um and that and he he doubted he didn't know whether this call for him to be king of israel was coming really coming from god or whether it was coming from Samuel.
0: interesting
1: and, and the and the uh, disciples later on
0: um
1: it doesn't matter how educated they they were or uneducated or simple they absolutely had no doubt that the call was coming from god what and a, that's what allowed them to work miracles.
0: What a great point. What an interesting point because we've already seen Samuel like when he um try well we have Samuel definitely has tendencies to pick who he thinks is best, right? And the Lord, <laughs> you know, the Lord the Lord kind of shuffles him back onto the to the right path as he goes along. So that's very interesting. What do you all think?
2: We, we thought he was probably a, privilege, a privileged, uh, rich kid whose father was always putting him down for not, doing, not being too ambitious.
0: <laughs> That's a, you know, that actually sounds quite plausible, right? We see that play out all over the place in kids' lives now. Or yeah.
3: Be that, and not necessarily the father didn't, maybe the father was just a very strong person, and, uh, you know, was used to doing everything himself and never allowed his son to have responsibilities that he should have had because he just, you know, hadn't given them over to to Saul yet. Maybe he he wasn't uh, weak enough to think that somebody else needed to start taking control. I I see this all the time in families where, you know, you have these adult children who have no understanding of the family business at all, because Dad or mom has never allowed them
0: to have that responsibility, not because they didn't trust them, but because they just never thought of giving it up you know that also, that's an a really interesting observation because because remember that the um, story said that the father was a man of strength and valor, and we're introduced to Saul. Out with the servant looking for lost donkeys, right? That fits exactly what you were saying, yeah
4: yeah yeah and 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 contrasting that to the to the disciples, to the fishermen, um, we were thinking, you know the fishermen probably from a pretty young age, had to be out making their own way um, and 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 the word that came to my mind was they were scrappier. Because they, you know, they had to get out, they had to learn the skills, they had to do the job, they, they were used to taking on new responsibilities, new skills, and so it would have not been as, as uncomfortable for them, perhaps, to take on something new as it would be for Saul, who always, who was still acting more like a servant in his father's household than as a, an independent adult man
5: then that makes me wonder, was he ever good enough for his father? You know, so what did, what was his childhood like? What was his relationship with his father? What failures did he experience? What rejections did he live? What criticism did he have to endure to get to a point where he was treated not like the man that, you know, he is. And then kind of contrasting it with, If that was what he saw and experienced, of course, he would have insecurities and doubt. Well, the fishermen are living life and seeing miracles in front of them. They are witnessing Christ. So it's easier to kind of jump on being a disciple and follower of Christ when you are physically seeing miracles happening. In my opinion, I, I I'm someone who I'm I'm quick to believe something if I see it instead of someone telling me about it. So that could be what
3: Ellen just said was so on point, and I didn't even make the comparison until she said that. I'm like, my oldest son is going to be 30 in June. Um, he never finished his bachelor's degree. Um, he was engaged, but he ended up breaking it off, and it was a good thing. He's <laughs> He's got really low self-esteem, but he grew up with a father who was very, nothing was ever good enough. And all of my kids, I have six kids, and all six of them spend so much wasted time trying to make him proud, and it's never gonna happen. And I see a lot of what Saul did in my son in that he wouldn't try new things because what if I try it and fail and he wasn't putting his trust in God or even in himself or in me or you know he was looking for that a boy that wasn't going to come oh. and at 30 years old he's still looking for it and oh. I wonder if that isn't where Saul was
1: I have a son very similar to that, who's forty or forty-one, and um, yeah, I think I think there are a lot of a lot of people like that. And that would, assuming that Saul had some of those experiences, that would make it even more difficult for him to truly believe that this had come from God.
3: Yes. See, now I'm feeling sorry for Saul. A while ago, I wasn't I wasn't giving him credit for anything. And right, Woody. he <laughs> would say, "Well, maybe he thought this," and I was like, "I think you're giving him too much credit." Now I'm feeling sorry for him.
6: <laughs> also, even if he didn't have all the negatives that we're projecting that he may have encountered, when we're young, we don't have the experience. We don't have the life knowledge of making choices and following god's will seeking god's will and the experiences it's not until in, in like i use the saying fake it till you make it and i think i did that until i was in my 40s even though i was very good at what i did in my 30s and whatnot You don't get that confidence in yourself until you're older, until you have those life experiences. And whether you've been afforded the opportunities to be appreciated for who you are, or if you're still seeking that attaboy. I know I personally, and Woody can attest to this, I think, I have a calendar that I keep at my desk. And when I get an attaboy, I write it on a Post-it note and slap it in there because there's some other, oh, shoot, kind of days that I'm going to need to look back at those attaboys and say, it's not always this
0: bad, you know?
1: Some people need attaboys more than other people.
0: Amen. I run on attaboys. That just seems to be how I'm cut out. I'm needy. I'll take it. I mean, it's just, it's not like I particular that I, that I can't say I, I can honestly say that in the end, I'm going to make my choices irrespective of what anybody thinks of me, but man, I, I need something in my soul. Really, really needs the attaboys. Oh
6: yeah.
0: Oh, and I think (laughs) one thing we discussed in our group, I think
3: it was Ross who brought it up is because of where this kind of the state of Christianity is right now, you don't know which way to go sometimes because some things look crystal clear to me. And then I see a group of people and they're like, you know, and it's how they're doing stuff so differently that then I doubt myself that I actually know what I'm thinking or what I want to do because it's, I don't know. It's like a disconnect because you want to be like, I feel like the, when I was in high school and I wanted to be a popular kid, you know, I want to agree with all these popular people, but then I'm like, no,
4: I don't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, one, one thought occurred to me and I, I can't remember if it was in the text, but was Saul the oldest son? Would he have been the heir or was he a younger son?
0: I don't remember. I, I, I honestly because that remember.
4: might also have played into his insecurity. You know, maybe the father was grooming another son, mm. mm-hmm. and he was a younger brother. But I, I don't remember.
0: I, I don't know. I'd have to, I'd have to look that up myself. That would be interesting to know. We are at twelve o'clock. Uh, my time central time so um, this is like kind of the official end of class but as always we can
4: um, keep going I've, I've got to go
0: bye, I, I need to, to go,
4: go. too bye bye everybody
3: bye Gladys had the perfect word in our group tell her your word Gladys, gladys. gladys. that's my, my daughter's roommate's name was Gladys Gladys yeah, tell you, her your word
0: unmute
4: yourself gladys <laughs> I use the word discernment a lot. I'm trying to discern what God wants to do with my life, and my choices that I make. And I think that, as a human being, that is a very difficult thing for us to sometimes understand.
0: Absolutely, that's a. I think
4: Shirley ner- uh, l- uh, learned a new word today.
3: <laughs> no, I already knew that word. I just uh, <laughs> but, impressed it upon me more today. Uh,
6: yeah, if it were, yeah. I have fun. Something funny to share. Um, yesterday, I attended my Christian Legal Society luncheon that we do on Zoom lunch. And it was not the usual people because everyone's on spring break. So the lady that was hosting the the event decided to do the talk on St. Patty's Day and wishing people good luck. And luck, apparently, the dictionary... Um, description is by chance you know it's it's not it's by chance or whatever and so people were saying instead of saying good luck say good providence or different things and one we had a bunch of readings and one of the readings was about casting lots and it reminded me of the umen and Uman. Uh-huh. am i right yep and so we are talking about the- that, and one of the ladies goes, "Wait, am I missing something yet? Is there craps in the Old testament <laughs> <laughs> did you I hope you told her yes <laughs> <laughs> Well, we all talked about it, we talked about the breastplate and the twelve tribes and you know, and told her where to find it. She was very, very impressed, and I was like, I knew something <laughs>
4: I was That's so happy. Hilarious. That's too funny. Okay. Bye, everyone. Bye. I
2: Bye. I got a question, Gail. Okay. How do you... How how, how might you, you tell somebody that you think the other person's the imposter?
0: Well, there certainly are imposters out there, and my general feeling is that it's not my place to judge nor to tell them. You know, um, how do you help I, them discern
2: um, what what is an imp- a po- imposter and what is not? I mean, uh, you know, certainly we've got a we've got quite a few Christians running around that think that they're not imposters, but we can't all be right.
3: Well, imposter syndrome is different than being an imposter, right, Gail?
0: Right. That's we're true. talking about
3: two totally different things.
0: That's true. But but um, imposter syndrome is where you've you are the real deal, but you feel like an imposter and therefore you don't step into your yeah. um, talent and your calling. But and there are also imposters, the sheep in wolves clothing. I mean, the wolves and sheep. Well, yeah. Clothing.
2: Well, to be clear, I was changing up the subject.
0: Oh, OK. What? So rephrase your question.
2: Well, we've been talking about imposter syndrome and I and I wanted to change kind of do a 180 on people who are fighting amongst themselves saying that other person's the impos the imposter.
0: Yes. Okay, so let me respond to that. Um within and we're talking within the Christian context, of course. So um I think That within the Christian context, we are all imposters. There is no worth except for the Lord. There Mm. is no strength except for the Lord. There is no truth except for the Lord. And that is why we are called to humble ourselves. To recognize that fact, to allow ourselves to be weak and unknowing, you know, in terms of not being the expert, to being um, in, in dance terms, easily led, <laughs> you know, by the master hand. Um, that we need to understand that none of us is the authority. and that's the safe place to be our only call is to face the lord Mm -hmm. to try to see what the lord is doing to try to hear what the lord is saying and to move that direction to 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 be open to the lord to move closer to the lord and that is our only calling with respect to other people um to if we see someone heading off you know further and further from the Lord, the fruit of their lives will reveal that. The closer you get to the Lord, the better the fruit of your life, okay? Peace, patience, kindness, joy, self-control, love, compassion, grace for other people and for yourself. To the extent that you're moving further and further from the Lord, the fruit of your life is going to be self-hatred, low self-esteem, anger, hatred, rejection of yourself and of other people, violence towards other people, both it can be physical or it can be emotional. It can be religious violence towards other people. It's very easy to see the fruit. And so if we see that fruit, our responsibility is not to fix the other person our responsibility is simply to do what we can to one draw alongside them and point them towards God and to protect other people from the consequences of their actions, not reject the other person, you know, but to protect other people. Sometimes that means drawing boundaries, right? And Jesus did that all the time. Does, does that make sense as a response?
2: it it does and 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 i would i would definitely agree with you the only the only problem in today unfortunately with that is people are are possibly drawn toward the other person uh the non-humble yeah
0: they absolutely are and it is their choice the lord lets us make that choice and again all we can do is draw alongside them and try to shine light try to be the light on the hill to try to you know offer alternatives but it is not our choice and it is not our responsibility to to um make their choice for them we provide the environment and the lord deals with the heart and when you get to the point where
3: you feel like you're talking to a brick wall and the things that they are doing is harmful to you that may be time to draw that boundary
2: That's exactly Uh, right. When
6: when
3: uh, Pastor Gail was
6: talking about this and when you were asking about it, saying being drawn to the other person, the other type of person, I've been married three times. My first two husbands were emotionally and physically abusive, but man, they were charismatic individuals. And you wanted to buy a dead horse from those guys and the manure that went with it and saddle blankets (laughs) and feed. And you felt happy when you dealt with them. But then when I married my third time, my husband is a phenomenal man, but he's so humble. And I can't even get him to go get a COVID shot, even though it's one C now because the one B's aren't taken care of and he won't, Take the COVID shot it's until one the 1Bs are taken care of. I'm like... with 1C? Somebody tell me. <laughs> over 50, 50 and over. Yes, I can get one. Okay. But I'm 1B and I'm not completely vaccinated. And so mm. he won't take a shot from anybody like me. I'm like, you live with 1B. <laughs> but he's humble. He's real humble. but And he is a very interesting person. Very interesting. Um, but when you say drawn to the other, it it does wear off. That charismatic facade, you do see through it at some point. In my case, it happened to be 10
0: years in one situation, but you see through it at some point. I also think that there's a lot to be said for understanding that as the body of Christ, we are a fabric. And each of us is just one thread. And each of us is called to a particular purpose um, and gifted for a particular part of being that fabric. It is the fabric as a whole that provides the safety net for those people who are being drawn away. It is not, there is not one answer to the question that I hear underneath your question, which is what should we do about You know, those people that are being drawn away because the answer varies according to the to the person and their role in that cloth. So I may not be called to stand up in a pulpit and preach or to get online and rebut the false teachers. My my thread is to do these classes. You know, to to record what wisdom I can, to to record the wisdom you all are providing in the discussions, you know, and make it available. I truly believe that the Lord will make it right. I truly believe the Lord will not let one sheep be lost. If, we, no matter, there is no if or but, he will not. Our job, is the process. Our job is to stand in the place that we have been given to stand. And um there are times when when I am called to be militant, you know, and to be direct, like Jesus was sometimes. There are but it's situational, it's not um part of my whole thread. You know what I mean? Well, sometimes
2: well,
3: you get tired of The
0: amount of time he spent that way, it's like 10% compared to you know when he was meek and humble and exactly. Exactly. You know, Jesus modeled this for us. So, and the other thing that Paul made, uh, that uh, the apostle Paul made um, uh, us aware of was the power of prayer. And simply the, what, when it says that, you know, Samuel interceded for the people that was part of what he did, that is our job too. Okay. The, Prayer is powerful in situations where you're not the one, you know, able to to change some physical or touch some major, you know, national policy and make a change. You can't redirect some church or its pastor that are just completely off the rails, but you can pray and it makes a a political party makes (laughs) it. I say that out loud. Sorry.
3: (laughs) I
5: wonder too, how much of that, I agree with Ross there's a piece of we all are in this limbo state in Christianity because of what we see and often I wonder I act and don't act out of fear and and sometimes I have been taught of you got to be you got to do the right thing make the right decision make the right choices in order to be a good christian and and be saved and and so I think part of the split we're starting to see, it it could be based on our internal dialogue and and going back to we only see that there's a right and a wrong and and that we have to kind of navigate in this line where we cannot veer off and we almost forget what has been done on the cross. And so we know it in our head. It's just believing and, and living that out is a continued process. And I think Ross, when we were in our class, he said, is that part of that sanctification and it, it, it goes to, we are constantly evolving and our faith is growing and God is teaching us daily. And yet we still have that fear that makes us think that we have to do it right, that we have to be the right Christian, that we have to believe the right thing and we have to make sure we or or else, you know that that's kind of the framework that I find myself right. continuing, ah. yeah, continuing <laughs> to struggle with on a daily basis.
0: You know, I think of my life as a Christian, not as a straight and narrow path, but as a me- as a meadow, as existing in a meadow protected by the shepherd, and when mm. he leads me from one place to another, the path may indeed be narrow and there may indeed be danger, but as as long as I'm following the hem of his garment, I'm gonna be okay. And if I happen to stray off that path, he promised to come get me because I belong to him. I am part of his sheepfold. And if you stray off that path, you're still in that meadow. exactly. I mean, there is no well, way that I can be separated from him permanently. It just It's cannot... funny you should say that because
2: I I said two steps forward, one step back.
0: That's right. And we all do. We wander around and we try things and we do things wrong. And I, I, I do think that the the verse that talks about the straight and narrow path and few find it. I think that is real, and, and, and it goes on to say that the, 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 the path to destruction is wide, okay? The path to life is narrow. I think it's only, Jesus is only meaning that, that few people are willing to humble themselves before the Lord. Very few. And that is the only path to life.
3: I, I think part of the challenge too is that those who have the, you know, the, who view the path as narrow and not a meadow are at times the loudest voices. So it, oh, absolutely. it, it just, you know, when, when you're hanging out in the meadow, but all you hear is people screaming,
0: no, get on the path. I it's, know that it's, it's, it's like it. landmine, landmine. You know, and that's mm-hmm. not that's not how it is with Jesus. Jesus doesn't put us like that. You know.
4: Yeah.
0: Um, I I I want I want everybody to feel um, like if I ask you to raise your hand if you know for sure you're going to heaven. I want you to immediately put that hand up in the air. That's how sure you need to feel. And that's because God go on, go on. chose us. God wants us. And God's going to do whatever it takes, you know, to get us there. So, anyway, I got to go. I love you guys. Oh, it's been great. Thank you. And we'll (laughs) see you next week. Bye. See you next week. Bye. Bye.